once the twelve tribes are unified, David begins his dominion campaign for the glory of God, using all their gifts under the unified leadership of King David. Israel now sets forth to fulfill their covenant obligation. This is the eighth sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel and chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, beginning verse 6 through verse 10. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the same as the city of David. And David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites, and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said, The blind and lame shall not come into the house. So David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David. And David built round about from Milo and inward. And David went on and grew great. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians in chapter 12, beginning in verse 12 through verse 14. By the same spirit, the apostle writes, For as the body is one, And hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel once again presented unto us this day. Under David, Israel is again united as one nation, with one head, under one law, and in covenant with God and his anointed. Although comprised of many individuals and several tribes, they are now under David, functioning as one. They are unified. But even though Israel is unified and united together under David, seemingly as before, under Saul as a nation, rather than as a group of scattered tribes, this unification under David is completely unique. It's completely different. It is now under the authority of a man, not like Saul, but a man after God's own heart, who has already shown himself a righteous and capable leader. So you've got a unification very distinct from how it was unified under Saul. David's unification of the twelve tribes is completely distinct from the unification of the twelve tribes under Saul. Now that Israel is properly united, God sets in motion his plan of conquest over the enemies of Israel, beginning with the conquest of Jerusalem. This is the commission also, not only of Israel, but the commission of the church, to conquer in the name of Christ. Now before we move into verse 6, we must understand what it means to be properly united. What does it mean to be unified? What does it mean to be as one, to function as one body? United in name only is not true unity. Just because someone is a member of a church or identifies with a church does not mean that that church or that group of people is actually properly unified. 
or that that individual or or the group of individuals is actually unified as one. So just because someone says they're part of a body does not necessarily, just because they say so, means that they are part of the body. Unity is defined by action and involvement. The 12 tribes of Israel couldn't just say, well, now we are the army of God, and then do nothing. They had to be active. So just because someone is a member of a church does not mean that that church is properly unified. Unity is defined by action and involvement. True unity means that everyone is on board with the purpose and goal of the body of Christ or the city of God, if you will, and all are willing to participate in some way, shape, or form in that mission. And that mission is kingdom advancement. Israel had such a structure because all of Israel was by this time of one mind. So the idea of being of one mind is very, very essential to being unified. Notice verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. Now David might have always had Jerusalem in his sights from the very beginning when he defeated Goliath. When he slew Goliath, he had Jerusalem in his sights. And now if you remember, after David chopped off the head of the giant, he boldly brought that head right to Jerusalem in an intimidation tactic, almost as a pledge that one day he would conquer and occupy that great city. Today, in chapter 5, now with Israel united under one head, David, that day had finally come. Now that Israel was in full strength under David, and, and this is very important, not only in full strength, but in unity, unified, David could now be comprehensively victorious. See how important it is to be unified. This is what is needed for the church of Jesus Christ to take dominion, to be strengthened, to be active, and to have some productivity part of their commission. It takes unity, a unification. Now, the Apostle Paul explains what that unity means. Notice, first, he makes this statement in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, verse 17. Notice what he says about the church and how he is focusing upon oneness or unity. For we being many are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. So, we being many are one, in other words. The many are now made unified, they're made one by being joined together and joined to the Lord. Notice how he says that we are one bread, alluding to the fact that each of us individually and as a unified unit are fed from the bread of life. We're all eating of that bread, we're all drinking in of that, of that water of the word. The word and the word made flesh and are then to feed one another with that same word. You see, the unification of Israel's troops, not only were they unified in one mind, but they were encouraging one another. They were working together. They were, were, were feeding on one another and feeding one another. And this is the essential component of Christianity. It's the essence of the Christian life as it relates to the body of Christ. And it is a deliberate ministerial association among the members of the body of Christ. We have to feed one another. We have to be unified. Now notice first Paul is arguing against any notion 
that Christianity is a religion of cliquish tribalism or self-centered pietistic individualism. That's what used to be the testimony of the 12 tribes. They were very tribal. Secondly, Paul goes on to further explain to the Corinthians, especially to the Corinthians, mind you, how this unity is to be understood and then applied. Not only is he speaking about the concept or the philosophy of what it means to be in union, but he's now telling us how it is to be applied. Notice, he moves on to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verse 12 and following. Notice, For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. Notice how many times he's using this idea of oneness. So also is Christ. In other words, Christ is not divided. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Now, no longer is the assembly of Christians to be divided by individualistic tendencies, to be pietistic or individualistic. Paul goes on to give this example. Notice in verse 15 and following of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would the smelling? In other words, every portion of the body is essential. But they are only able to function properly by working together. He says in verse 18, But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. Now the individual remains an individual. This is what Paul is saying. The individual still remains an individual while at the same time yoked to everyone else in the body of Christ. And he is yoked to everyone else in the body of Christ in order to fulfill the dominion commission of the church of Jesus Christ. But consider to whom Paul is writing. He's writing to the church at Corinth. He's not writing this to the Ephesians. He's certainly not writing it to the Philippians. He's writing it to the church at Corinth. So what is so special about the church of Corinth? Why would he feel so compelled to set forth this most essential component of the Christian faith and the unity of the body of Christ to the church at Corinth, to the Corinthians? Well, the answer is because those at Corinth had some issues. They were proud people. They were, in fact, bordering on arrogant, definitely puffed up with knowledge without any real regard for what it meant to be a unified Christian people. The church at Corinth had some real issues. Paul opens his discourse with a blessing, yes, as he usually does, but quickly gets to the real reason of his letter by verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 1. Notice what he says after he goes through the formalities, after he goes through the pleasantries. He says, Now I beseech you, I beg you, brethren, my brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. And the reason why he's saying that is because they weren't speaking the same thing. There were divisions, there were problems. That ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions, no schisms among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together, and that means unified in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, why would he say that? Well, he tells us exactly why he would say that in verse 11. For it hath been declared unto me of you, you Corinthians, my brethren, 
by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. I have this sect, I'm part of that group, I'm part of the other group, I'm part of that tribe, that tribe, the other tribe. I'm part of Ephraim, Benjamin, Judah. And Paul says, is Christ divided? Is the body divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see, the Corinthians had the baggage of their ancestors, which were Greek, of whom were very heady philosophers. If you talk about the Greeks, immediately you would think of the Greek philosophers, the Stoics, the politicians. And this is why Paul is quick to point out the folly of those who perceive themselves as wise and full of knowledge. So he corrects them, he corrects them by warning them that if they're going to glory in anything, they are to glory in the Lord and of the gift that they have been given by God in order to honor Him and serve Him, not to honor themselves and serve themselves. And this is what he says in verse 29, 30, and 31 of that same chapter, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Notice what he says. So that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him, notice, of him are ye in Christ Jesus. It's all his doing. Who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, don't let him glory in his knowledge, don't let him glory in whatever philosophical prowess he has, but he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. In chapter 4, Paul reminds the Corinthians that without God's intervention in their lives, giving them whatever knowledge they have, they would be nothing. And so he reminds them that their glorying in what they know is dangerous. Notice what he says, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? Why are you glorying in something that, that you received? You, you didn't do it. It's not from you. It's not you. It's from God. You see, too many folks within the congregation at Corinth were puffed up with theological and philosophical knowledge which began to eat away at the principles of true faith. Paul regarded the principles of true faith as humility, long-suffering, patience, kindness, tender-hearted, Service and encouragement of the brethren. Because true faith is manifested in action. And all the Corinthians were doing was philosophizing. They were theologically head-scratching. Instead of ministering to one another, many of the Corinthians believed themselves better or more worthy or more blessed as a result of what they knew or to be more accurate of what they thought they knew. The fact of the matter was that with all their knowledge... According to the Apostle Paul, they forgot the basics of Christianity and the simplicity that would be found in Christ. In other words, they failed on the most basic level of Christianity by elevating themselves and comparing themselves by themselves according to the knowledge that they possessed, thinking that they possessed it of their own power and prowess, they became fools. So in his second letter, obviously they didn't, Heed the warning of his first letter. In his second letter, notice what he tells them in chapter 10, verse 12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, 
but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. You see, beloved, theological knowledge, when it is used primarily as a measure of the Christian life, can be very deceptive. Christianity is not about the ability to win apologetical arguments or deep discussions about the minutiae of theological knowledge, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin kind of thing, but rather it's about living a deliberate, and I want to underline and underscore that word, a deliberate, obedient life in humility, service, and I'm going to stress service in the building of the kingdom and fellowship with the body of Christ before the Lord. So Christianity is a life of biblical action for the kingdom's advancement, whether it's to encourage one another within the body of Christ or to get out there and work to advance the truth of God's word. Paul tells the Philippians that they are to do what they have seen him to do. Now notice, Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. Notice what he says. Those things, I would even add everything that you saw me do, all those things, all those things, which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me. So he was showing the truth by his example. Notice the next word, do. That word is probably the most powerful word in scripture. Do. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. Because if you do it, The God of peace shall be with you. In other words, just don't talk about what you know. Do those things that you know you ought to do. Now, permit me to to give my, my favorite example, some of my favorite examples. The scripture tells us that husbands are to love their wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So the question I always ask is, husbands, are you serving your wives? Are you ministering to your wives? You are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Are you serving your wife? Are you loving your wife? Are you serving her? Christ is ever serving us. Or, husbands, are you spending your time in holy contemplation? I always use that example when you get home from a hard day of work. And yes, men, you bear the burden of work. But you are made to bear the burden of work. Your consistency, your physiological consistency is to bear work. And then, men, you come home and your wife is there bearing her work with the children, you are to step up and help her with her duties. Not sit down on the couch and read the Bible so that you can look more holy. So are you spending your time serving or in holy contemplation while your wife labors under the burden of the household chores without your aid? James says that we are to show our faith by our works. And I will say this, talk is so cheap. In fact, it's cheaper today than it ever was. We talk incredibly wondrous things. But how many things are we actually doing? We have to get out of our comfort zone. We have to recognize that we are God's mouthpiece. Service is all about sacrifice. And sacrifice is all about what Christianity is. And that is what we are called to do. To get out of our comfort zone, not living in the margin, not not doing what things are just getting us over the hump so we can go to heaven, but really giving our lives for the service of Christ and the advancement of his kingdom. Now, while Christianity is a warfare, it is not to be always combative. Christianity, yeah, it's a warfare. But it's not always meant to be combative. 
The Great Commission never said, go into all the world fighting with everyone and winning every theological argument you can. Only then shall your reward be great in heaven. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, get on Facebook and spend your time arguing with miscreants that will never hear you. It doesn't say that. It says, teaching every man whatsoever he has commanded us in lowliness of mind. Now, are there times, I will admit, there are times where we must deal with men harshly, even as Christ dealt with the apostate theologians of his day. Yes, we are to deal with them harshly. We have to be discerning who we're going to deal with harshly. But even there, we are to rebuke and exhort with all long suffering and patience. Now, does this mean that we are to pray for people to be destroyed that are unrepentant? Well, sure. Sure, but we have to decide who, who are those who are unrepentant. Do we pray that maybe they would be regenerated? Well, sure. But we need to be discreet. We need to be discerning as to how to pray. Now, when we do pray for the destruction of the wicked, when we pray in precatory prayers, and then we do see the destruction of the wicked, do we rejoice? Or do we pity them having no pleasure in their death? Well, of course, we rejoice. As the scripture says, when the wicked are destroyed, the people are rejoicing. But there's part of me that must add, of course, there's got to be some pity. Because, but for the grace of God, we would be those people. Now, the only way the church regains its victorious foothold in the culture is to, number one, firstly, each and every professing Christian must become humble before God and before one another. Remember, you should have knowledge, but it's not what Christianity is all about. Second, every Christian must take account of his or her own depravity before God and repent. The Puritans used to say, repentance is never out of season. You just don't repent once as if you've only sinned once. Repentance is never out of season. We always ask for forgiveness. This means that we consider our bitterness toward one another, our schismatic behavior, our hatred, unforgiveness, backbiting, and any other sin that can harm the relationships that make up the body of Christ and repent. We need to promote unity, oneness. Thirdly, we must recognize that any and all gifts of knowledge, service, sacrifice, and humility, all of them are a gift from God, and they are to be used for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God, and the advancement of that kingdom. Fourth, individualism is a destructive sin. Pietism, in other words, is anti-Christian. When we are in the Lord's house in the Lord's day, we are to be about God's business, talking with one another, not cloistering away in a corner along with, with, our, with our, our cell phones or with the same people week after week, Sunday after Sunday to debate theology. We have to be about, and I always use this as an example. Whenever I meet you, and you will attest to this, how are you? I want to know how you are. Now, usually, you know, when you meet somebody on the street, you say, oh, how are you doing? Because you really don't want to know. You just, that's kind of nice to say that. How are you? Oh, you're good. Yeah, good. Okay, I'm busy. <laughs> no, no, no. I want to know. How is your family? What's happening? Now, it's tough to, to get around everybody, but if everyone asks everyone else, then everyone feels like someone's caring about them. It's that, it's that yoking, that unity. The body must yoke together. 
But when we are not encouraging one another, when we're not caring about one another, when we're not making phone calls to one another, when we're not ministering to one another, the body cannot strengthen itself. The body cannot be strong. The body becomes weak. And this, this tribal attitude, this, this individualistic attitude that Israel and Judah had was dangerous. And they were guilty of that until they regained their footing as a unified community under God. A communing body of Christ under David in the fear of God. Now while they were made up of 12 different tribes, and they were all very different. They're, they're as different as night and day. Benjamin was totally different from Ephraim and, and Judah from, from, from uh, the others. They were all different. But yet they worked as one nation. Different tribes, one nation, many, yet one, one, yet many. You cannot leave it to the leadership of the church to extend the right hand of fellowship to everyone that attends on the Lord's Day. We all are ministers of God. We all are priests of God. We all have a duty to reach out in fellowship. When one is sick, we're all sick. When one is well, we're all well. When one is mourning, we're all mourning. Fellowship means communion. And communion can only be realized through communication with those of like mind. Now Paul tells the church at Corinth, tells the Corinthians, that when they prepare for the supper of the Lord, in that communion ceremony, notice what he says. He says that they are to discern the Lord's body. Now what is he saying? He's not talking about Christ. He's talking about the body of Christ. He's talking about the church. We are to discern, before we go to the table, we are to discern the body of Christ. What's happening in the body of Christ? Who is sick? Who is not sick? Who is hurting? Who is not hurting? So he begins by reminding them that within their assembly, there are damaging divisions coupled with selfish behavior. And this is in chapter 11. Notice, we've gone through chapter 10, chapter 12, chapter 1, chapter 11, because that was the problem in Corinth. They were out of order. They were in chaos. Notice what he says, beginning of verse 18 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. In other words, there's no unity. Schism. And I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies or sects among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. In other words, there's not the discernment that's needed in the body of Christ as far as caring for one another. We are to tarry for one another. In other words, we are to discern the Lord's body. He then tells them that as a result of their navel-gazing, as a result of their tunnel vision individualism, they have not properly discerned the body of Christ before they partook of the Lord's Supper. They were all about themselves. Oh, this is all about me. No, 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 no. The Lord's Supper is not all about you. It's all about us, the body of Christ. Take, eat, this is my body that was given for you all as one body. Notice what he says, verse 27 through 29. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord without reverence, without reverence of the body, 
shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, or without reverence, without understanding what he's doing, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the church. Notice, not discerning the Lord's body, not discerning the members of the church. As you know that when we are scheduling the Lord's Supper, there have been times when I knew that a majority of the congregation would not be there and we would postpone it just so we would get as many people able to be in the congregation discerning the Lord's body and being unified together on that day so we would postpone it so that everybody would be able to partake. So Paul is charging the Corinthians for not considering the church of Jesus Christ as it concerns their interrelationships. In other words, they have not taken the time to care for one another or to inquire as to the well-being of one another outside of their own group. And this is why he charges them for, for stating that some of them are of Apollos and some of Cephas, some of Paul, some of Christ. Everybody's on their own agenda. That is not the church of Jesus Christ. It is not to be the church of Christ. Now identifying with these, Apollos and Cephas and Paul and Christ, they were schismatic. Now why in the world would Paul be so harsh? And I read this as Paul, Paul is teaching them, but he's, he's not mincing any words. And some might read this as, Paul is pretty hard on the Corinthians. Well, some might even conclude, that did he hate them? Did this reproof show that he had some disdain for them? Did he receive some sort of secret pleasure in flexing his apostolic authority upon them? Did he think himself better than they? Of course not. The last thing he thought was that he was better than anyone. In fact, he believed himself to be the least of the apostles and stated that even if he had all knowledge, faith, and and spoke with the tongues of men and of angels, if he didn't do all things from the motivation of love, he was nothing and he understood that. So whatever he's saying to the church at Corinth or whatever a minister says to his congregation to get them on the right track, it is because they care about them. So he tells the Corinthians the cold, hard truth as a loving father so that they might repair that which is wanting before God and one another. In 2 Corinthians 11.11, he desires, notice what he says, he desires to cut off all those that boast and are proud for their own good and especially for the good of the body of Christ. Notice what he says. 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12. Wherefore, in other words, why do I do this? Why, why, am I, why am I telling you these things? Why am I pulling all the stops out and, and ripping into you? Why do I do this? Why do I tell you these things? Wherefore, because I love you not? Question mark. God knoweth. But what I do, that I will do, so that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion to destroy the unity of the body, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. So, so he's concerned about the people of God. It's the only reason why he's doing this. So finally, without the body of Christ unified, purged of all individualism and schism, victory can never be realized. Unity equals victory. Christendom must overcome this sickness of individualism, being disunified, if it is ever to be productive, kingdomward in a world of wickedness. Israel alone 
could not fulfill its God-given commission, nor could Judah until it was unified as one nation. The two had to be rejoined as one. Paul explains this to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord. Notice how many times you're using the word one. Unity, unity, unity. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, once Israel and Judah are inseparably joined under David, David moves his army to the city of peace, which is now held by the Jebusites. We read this in verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, and thou shalt not, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. Now, as David approaches the city, the Jebusites insult him by telling him that even blind and lame men could defend the city against David's attack, insinuating that David was so weak and his army so insufficient to take the city that even blind and lame men could defend against it. The Reverend Howie's comments, he says, the Jebusites treat David's attempt with great derision. Probably they manned the walls with blind and lame persons as if they were sufficient to defend against any force David could bring. The Reverend Scott augments this explanation. He says, The greater part of Jerusalem lay in the lot of Benjamin and had hitherto been possessed by the Jebusites. But as soon as Israel had submitted to David, he marched to dispossess them. The citadel called the stronghold of Zion, was fortified by nature and art, and the Jebusites set him at defiance. Confiding in its strength, its city strength, they told him that blind and lame men could defend it against his army, and perhaps, in derision, placed a company of such persons upon it who insulted David and his soldiers. For the last cause may be read, they had said even the blind and the lame that he should not come into the house. Very insulting. Now what the Jebusites failed to recognize was that David had the entire nation of Israel fortified as one man under his command. It was not the unification that Saul had. It was now under David and under God and the Lord was with David and had promised to be with David. The battle was not so much David's and David knew this, nor was it Israel's, nor was it Judah's, but it was the battle of the Lord to take the city of Jerusalem and to make it the city of David. But all of this because they were unified. David takes the city, which is identified in verse 7 as the stronghold of Zion. And this is the first time the word Zion is used in Scripture. It literally means the parched place, and it refers to the people of God who are initially without the water of life, but who become filled with living water so as to be identified as the new Jerusalem or the city of peace or the city of David. And here God calls the city the stronghold of Zion, or to be more precise, the stronghold of the city of peace. This was David's city. Now consider some additional symbolism of the stronghold of Zion. First, within the physical city, David was the king. In the same way as Christ is the king of the spiritual city, the church, the kingdom of God. And we see this in Psalm 2. Notice Psalm 2 verse 6. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Secondly, we also learn that Jerusalem was fortified upon a hill which made it very, very secure. 
The psalmist states that Zion is upon a holy hill, signifying an Eden type of abode where Eden is shown to be situated upon God's holy hill in Ezekiel 28. Thirdly, the psalmist in Psalm 9.11 describes that the Lord dwells in Zion in the same way that the Lord in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit dwells in the people of God who make up the city of God. Remember, we are called a city of God. Ye are be a city upon a hill. Notice Psalm 132, verse 13. For Yahweh hath chosen Zion, he hath desired it for his habitation, his abode. Jesus tells the apostles, you are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill, speaking of Jerusalem, cannot be hid. And that's very important. It cannot be hid. And yet, what, is the church, what has the church been doing? They've been hiding because they're disunified. Number four, the psalmist also tells us that it is the Lord that is building the city of Zion in order to show forth his glory. Notice Psalm 102.16. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. Number five. The psalmist also explains that it is out of that great city, out of the city of Jerusalem, out of Zion, that the strength of God goes forth in order to vanquish his enemies in the same way that David used the city of Jerusalem to become the stronghold of God for the destruction of his enemies. And that's what the church should be. That's what the typical church should be doing. Because out of Zion comes the strength of God. Notice Psalm 110, verse 2. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Is that what the church is doing? Is the church ruling in the midst of the enemies or the enemies ruling in the church? Number six. Speaking of the intimate union, communion, and fellowship that the saints have with God through his blessing, the psalmist explains how the saints are anointed with the dew of heaven. Notice Psalm 133, verse 3. As the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descendeth upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Number seven, the church symbolized by Zion is spoken of as having strong defenses. Do we have strong defenses? Not if we're disunified. Notice Psalm 48, verse 12 and following. Notice what God says. Now remember, whenever he speaks of Zion, he's speaking about us. He's speaking about the eternal church. Notice what he says, how he describes her. Walk about Zion. Go ahead, check her out. Walk about Zion and go round about her. See the towers thereof? Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that ye may tell it to the generation following. Set your heart to it. Consider it. For this is God. This God is our God forever and ever and he will be our guide even unto death. But it's, when we walk about Zion, what do we see? Theater, rock bands, anecdotal sermons, football scores. What do we see? Do we see the strength of God in Zion today? Number eight. Isaiah describes the commission of the church and how she is to go forth with the law of God into all the nations of the world. Notice Isaiah 2, verse 3. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that would be Zion, that would be Jerusalem, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion, notice, for out of the church shall go forth the law 
And the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, the covenant of God, will go forth from Jerusalem. But what do you have today with the church of Jesus Christ? Oh, we, no law but love. Oh, we don't want to be theonomic. That's too restrictive. But out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, upon hearing the insults of the Jebusites, of course, David, knowing David, he wouldn't take the insults of the giant of Gath, calling him an uncircumcised Philistine. Hearing these insults, David responds. Notice what he says, verse 8. David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they say the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Whoever smites these people, I'll make you the captain. So David tells his men that whoever destroys the blind and the lame, making a point to the Jebusites, they will get a great reward. Now, there may be some symbolism to be understood here at this point that's important. Well, it seems as if the blind and the lame represent those, in this case, that are weak and unable to defend the city. They also may be representing something even more sinister. It seems as if the blind and the lame men represent the idols of the Jebusites whom God refers to over and over again in Scripture as blind and lame. So whenever he speaks about idols, they're blind, they're lame, they're they're no good, they're not real. Whenever the Scripture refers to men as blind, it symbolizes their lack of spiritual sight and their propensity to idolatry. Adam's race, after the fall, was made blind by his rebellion. And this is why Christ comes to those of the elect who are idolatrous, pride, blind, and lame, and opens the eyes of the blind, referring to how Christ saves those people who were spiritually blind at one point as a result of their idolatry, of their self-idolatry, because that's, of course, what Adam wanted. He wanted to be his God. He wanted to be his own idol. And this is the intention of Isaiah's remarks in Isaiah 29:18. And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, And the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles to open the blind eyes and to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Jeremiah uses both the blind and the lame in Jeremiah 31 to describe those who were once blindly following idols. See how blind and idolatry, they work together, and how God intervenes in their lives as their Heavenly Father to give them sight. Notice Jeremiah 31, 7 and following. For thus saith the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Publish ye, praise ye, and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them forth from the north country and gather them from the coasts of the earth. And with them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child and her that travaileth with child together, a great company shall return thither. They shall come with weeping and with supplication. So will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. So you see, he's saying, I'm going to save the blind and the lame, mine elect. Now the wicked Jebusites, 
and their pride and their arrogancy thought that their idols could save them. They thought that the unified nation of Israel under David was so weak that even their idols, which were blind and lame, could defeat them. But again, as with so many of wicked people and nations, their idols were no match for the people of God. The idols of the secularists, the idols of wicked men and nations, they are no match for the people of God. Because they're no match for the people of God, David easily takes the city. He takes the city and he dwells there. He makes it his own and he calls it the city of David, which by interpretation means the city of the beloved. And because that's what the word David means. That's what his name means, beloved. So David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David. And David built round about from Milo and inward. And David went on. Notice, that was the beginning. That was the beginning of great conquests from that point forward. And David went on and grew great. And the Lord of forces and the Lord of hosts was with him. All because Israel was one man. Israel acted in unity. When the church of Jesus Christ, when Christendom once again is unified, the elect would then walk together in unity. Then we will conquer and the Lord will be shown great, great as he was in the days of David. We will return to the exploits of King David to see him further establish his kingdom as he does so, all to the glory of God. This we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.